Okay, welcome everybody. This is uh, Dustin from the Lantern Cinema Podcast. Uh, tonight I'm flying solo. Uh, both Hannah and Chris will not be taking part of this episode. I know it might feel a little weird to, to not have Chris's amazing intro. I actually feel a little weird about it as well. Um, but tonight we're actually bringing you a little bit of a different kind of episode. So um, I feel really positive about the show that we created with Moonrise Kingdom. It was a good just all around general discussion of the film. But for me, as the the music educator, <laughs> I, I just really was like rounding uh, third base on a specific idea in regards to uh, the soundtrack that exists in, in Moonrise Kingdom. Basically what had happened was through my research, I started to stumble upon this idea of Wes Anderson and Benjamin Britten kind of sharing a lot of commonalities. And it was through this book called Britten and Auden in the 30s, written by Donald Mitchell, that I started to find some even more specific similarities. So um, if it's okay right now, I'd actually like to read you the, the paragraph that kind of got me heading down this direction. Uh, the schoolboy world, in the most singular way, became one of the prime sources of imagery for the 30s writers. A whole new stock of symbols was introduced into literature, which had its origins in the sports field, playground, classroom, chapel, and school hall. School was an often bizarre community made up, whether staff or boys, of eccentrics and misfits, and through which stalked weighty symbolic figures embodying authority. Headmaster, chaplain, matron, headboy, prefect, and so on. So obviously, Moonrise Kingdom doesn't take place in the classroom, but its replacement is the Khaki Scouts. However, the 1971 film Melody which is a, a film that Hannah references in the episode. Wes Anderson has admitted to being the main source of inspiration for his film, which is Moonrise Kingdom, does take place in the classroom, and furthermore is a part of the movement described above. We really lucked out. Uh, I contacted a previous uh, college uh, professor, Dr. Eric Saylor, and he actually sent me to the way of uh, Dr. Christopher Shear, who's based out of Utah, who's kind of uh, someone who he collaborates with frequently, and they, they went to graduate school together. So we just engaged in this incredible conversation all about the music of Benjamin Britten and how it's used in Wes Anderson's film Moonrise Kingdom. So this is a bonus episode. It's just uh, meant to add just one more thought to our conversation we already had. So uh, once again, thank you so much. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. Good evening. Tonight we are joined by Dr. Christopher Shear. Christopher Shear is the Associate Professor of Musicology at Utah State University in Logan, Utah. Although he is very accomplished and published in his field, and I'll be sure to list all of these accomplishments in our episode notes for you all, for the purpose of our discussion tonight, his research is focused on late 19th and earliest century British musical culture. Again, that is putting it all quite briefly. Dr. Shear, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, and welcome to the Lantern Cinema Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to be invited. Yeah, well, wonderful. I have, is this your first film podcast that you've been on? I'm sure you've been interviewed for various other things in your uh, field, but is this the first time being on a film podcast? It is indeed, indeed, yes. <laughs> Okay. Awesome. Well, welcome. Uh, don't let it scare you. We're just going to have some fun. Uh, as we were kind of previously mentioning off, uh, I, I suppose off mic for as well as off mic can be during these times. Um, this is an opportunity for me to, uh, just add a little bit more to a couple points that I wanted to make in regards to the soundtrack on Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. So, um, we have a few, a mutual friend, my, one of my mentors and previous professors, uh, Dr. Eric Saylor from Drake University hooked us up. And uh, Dr. Eric Saylor is a very funny kind of personality and also uh, just a fountain of knowledge. So uh, if you're in good company with him, I'm sure you're going to be in good company with the rest of the show. 
<laughs> well, I, I, I went to graduate school with Dr. Eric Saylor. So when we get off off this, I'll tell you some stories. <laughs> okay, good. He's hoping that, uh, yeah, that none of that makes it to air. So um, <laughs> I, I guess starting off, I'm curious for you, are you quite the film lover yourself? I do love film. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I have, uh, when I have the time to, just to watch it and see it, but I grew up, especially in college and earlier years, kind of being a bit more fanatical, uh, about it. Um, but I, yeah. And especially the way in which, uh, music interacts with film is endlessly fascinating to me. Um, uh, so yeah, I guess you could say that I have, I have, um, some interest in this area. <laughs> yeah. Well, and when I initially contacted Dr. Saylor, trying to get a little bit more insight specifically into the, the music of Benjamin Britten, because he is someone that specializes in the field of English classical music. He directed me to your attention because he said, not only do you have uh, a similar expertise, but he was also saying that you're a, a huge fan of Wes Anderson. So I guess with that, I was curious, what is your personal history with the films of Wes Anderson? Well, I mean, that's funny you should say, you know, of, of all filmmakers, Wes Anderson seems to be the one that I am most attracted to and have been for a very long time. I mean, I'm dating myself here, but in the... <laughs> You know, I saw Bottle Rocket in the movie theater when I was a senior in high school. So, yeah, I mean, I saw that and, and I've seen every one since. Uh, it, the only one I've missed in the movie theater is Isle of Dogs. Um, and I hope things will, you know, recover enough that I'll get to see the new one in the theater. But um, my, I had a friend in high school who was uh, ended up working in films. And uh, even at that time, he was fascinated with Kubrick and Wes Anderson. And so we would go see all of these films, you know, at a second run film house or at a new or regular uh, cinema in normal Illinois. <laughs> what a great name. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Um, so that that's we, this is what's even worse. We grew up in a little town just north there called El Paso, Illinois. So we would go down to normal and watch the movies of Wes Anderson. Yeah. It yeah. sounds almost like a Wes Anderson plot in itself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Of course. So one thing that we had talked about on the previous episode, we were talking about how Wes Anderson encompasses some kind of quality in him that when you see that first film, there's something so attractive about it that you, you know... For, for one of the people, one of the hosts on our show, Chris, uh, they had seen, um, what was, oh, it was Moonrise Kingdom. And for them, it just put them down this rabbit hole of wanting to see all these films. So it's incredible to hear that you're one of the first people that I've met that actually had a chance to see Bottle Rocket in, in theaters. It was a complete, uh, we were the only, I think we were the only two people in the theater. And I think, I don't know how long it was there. It must've been there for like two days or something. I mean, it was like, you know, I, my friend Abe knew about it and he's like, we got to go see this film. I saw the short, I guess, or the something with, there was a short, right? Of course. That, yep, right. Yep. A short. Um, and he knew about it somehow and we went and saw it. Yeah. And you know, I was just taken by the um, strength of vision that all of that, that movie had in the, and subsequent ones, it developed more of course, in Rushmore, you know, it got very much more Wes Anderson. -y. Um, but you can still feel it in bottle rock. And I thought it was a good film. I thought Rushmore was a better film and then kind of snowballed from there. So, well, and it's interesting with bottle rocket because that movie possesses, uh, for me, I feel it possesses such an interesting humor to it. The humor is so strong in that film, but it's also kind of so offbeat and dry. You mm. know what I mean? Uh, what yeah. was it initially for you that attached yourself with Wes Anderson? Was it the vi the visual side or for you coming from a music background, were you attracted to the music? Obviously, those mu uh, those films are so famous for that. Yeah, I mean, I have to say this is maybe a cop-out, but it was, it's the world that he creates by combining all those things. It's the Gesamtkunstwerk, if you want to use a fancy ecology term, right? <laughs> you know, these things come together and become something more than themselves, right? The visuals, the, the humor, the writing, the, the sound, um, everything kind of is unmistakably when put together Wes Anderson and that's that that kind of thing that you can even feel in Bottle Rocket and then especially more in Rushmore is I'm incredibly attracted to that world that he keeps creating or or revisiting in different ways in his films and it's interesting because um you know we're bringing up Bottle Rocket first we didn't have a chance too much to talk about 
uh, bottle rocket the previous episode but once again the style's not intense uh as intense as it is when it gets to the the second film rushmore by the time you get to rushmore all of the tropes that exist within wes anderson's world are all there on display it's not so much in bottle rocket but for some people i think that's almost like a plus in that film because it's 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 offbeat enough but it's not so much down the rabbit hole of all the various things you associate with wes anderson for you has there ever been a point throughout the filmography where you're like okay i think i've i think i've reached my quota with wes anderson you know this this may again this may be that what you might might not be healthy but not yet (laughs) well you know what i will say this if you uh you had said you had mentioned that you haven't had a chance to see isle of dogs i would strongly encourage it it would be really interesting to see what you think of it were you a fan of fantastic mr fox I was, yeah. I thought that was a great film. I mean, so different, but in some ways so redirecting for what he's, for the way, the direction of his career, right? Oh, um, yeah. Uh, was going on. And, you know, I, it, there are ones, there are movies that I like better, and there are some that I like less, but they're still, you know, I own all of them and watch them, re rewatch them quite a lot. So, have, have you had a chance to show your son uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox yet? I have when he was very small. And in fact, when this all came to be, I said, we were going to have to watch this now, Talis, because you're going to have, you're going to be understanding it more, you know, before it was just kind of like cool shapes when he was two. Right. (laughs) Um, now I think he'll enjoy some more aspects of it. Yeah, I feel like we showed it to our daughter when she was quite young, and I feel like we planted the seeds for a little cinephile. You know what I mean? There's like enough movie tricks, and the story's so great, and obviously it has, for me in that in that film, all the great Beach Boys music. I love all that stuff, um, and, and specific deep, deep cuts. So I think that might be a good segue into getting us, you know, uh, you had mentioned previously when we had talked that um, in regards to the pop music, that's used throughout Wes Anderson's uh, films. It wasn't something that would necessarily be your strength, but I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, from a musicologist standpoint, how would you describe the way that Wes Anderson typically uses music in his films? Well, I mean, that's, that's interesting because in, in, I, I'm trying to think of specific examples, but it's often the case, right, that you have music that is that moves from diegetic to non-diegetic moves to be part of the film and then to be only be heard by the audience. Yes. Right. It, in this way. And he, he uses it often. I'm thinking now, I guess I think he's specifically of Royal Tenenbaums now, you know, he often uses it to set a mood. Um, and sometimes the mood begins in the shot, in the scene, and then kind of expands outward to a greater coherence and a greater meaning uh, when he moves through. Or something as simple as um, the um, uh, Show George music in Steve's Zoo, right, which completely sets a tone for the whole film. And it's almost like everything kind of builds out of that in a way. Um, so, and, and, you know, I think it should be noted and I was thinking more about this today, actually, that there is a difference, though. There's, a, there's, there's an essential difference, I think, that starts after the Darjeeling Limited. And that's where Wes Anderson changes um, music uh, uh, producers or soundtrack writers, right, from Mark Mothersbaugh to Andre Desplat. Um, and I think that it, much more the um, recorded music was allowed to, to serve those kinds of functions in the earlier films, popular music. And in the more recent ones, of course, that function is taken by composed music. Yes. The exception being, arguably, Moonrise Kingdom, where the two of them are interacting at an almost equal level. Yes, I'm totally with you on that. And I think it should be noted as well that Wes Anderson himself, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to listen to any interviews with him or uh, the great Wes Anderson film book. It's a huge book that it's it's more or less, yes, you're looking at it right now. Yes, it's, it's terrific. <laughs> it's essentially for anyone that's listening, it's one of those oral history uh, books. But then there's also uh, essays. So it's kind of a combination of, you know, kind of these scholarly essays talking about each film and then also hearing it right from director Wes Anderson's very specific things. And one thing that I noted through reading that Wes Anderson really is a huge classical music fan. He's referencing pieces all the time. And actually I wrote down a quote from this book that I think is interesting when he went to create Royal Tenenbaums, 
One of the first things that he actually had in mind for that film was a piece of music by Ravel that was supposed to accompany that film. So if it's okay, I'm going to read this now. Uh, so the piece of music that he's talking about is Ravel's string quartet in F major. Uh, this is Wes Anderson. That piece was one of the first ideas I had for the film. Ravel's string quartet in F major. The scene where Margot is coming off the, the bus and the tennis court scene where Richie has his meltdown. Those three scenes were the first ideas we had for the movie many years before we made it. So he's someone that has just a huge interest in classical music, but yet it still took a while for him to, you know, completely get on board with focusing that interest in his films. You were talking about Mark's mother's, uh, mother's bot. One thing about him, it kind of seems like previously he had kind of created music that was almost had a broke quality or something like that, but it was like an affected music, right? It was something that was supposed to sound like something. <laughs> what do you have, if anything, for a response to this? Well, I mean, the, one need only look at the career of Mark Mothersbaugh. He's absolutely prolific and amazing in the different styles that he works in in film. I mean, it, we talk about him in the Wes Anderson movies, but I mean, I just I was curious and I just pulled up all the movies that he's done, and you know, I would would not necessarily, and this is not a bad thing, I would not necessarily pinpoint some of those as Mark Mothersbaugh movies because obviously he has the ability to morph according to who he's working with. Whereas if you listen to Despla. He is. <laughs> That's that that he sounds like that all the time. You know what I mean? And it's it's one of those things. I think you know. Um, it, obviously, it's a collaborative effort with Mother's Ball. And I think in Display, he what what uh, Anderson may have found is that voice that fits his world. And so he comes back to it in a, in a different way. Um, and I, I mean, that, that plays out a lot in Moonrise Kingdom. I mean, the music that Desplat writes in some ways is built upon those classical uh, pieces that obviously fascinated Anderson um, and inspired him in the work. I mean, you listen to the bits that, that Desplat writes and you can hear the influence of the Britain works that are being used in other parts of the movie. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, you're already bringing it up. So Moonrise Kingdom is certainly the film within the filmography um, that there starts to be this change in the way that Wes Anderson uses music. Um, how, how would you describe his approach to music within Moonrise Kingdom? You're talking about some of the, the, the composers. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about it? Well, I mean, uh, one of the immediate differences I guess we can think of is as you you know you were you were um, talking about how he was talking about in Tenenbaums how the Ravel influenced the creation of those scenes. He talks a bit about in the same book about how Britain, the works of Benjamin Britten, who is an English composer um, who worked in the middle part of the 20th century, he died in 1976, um, kind of inspired some of the things in the work and talks about how he, uh, it was, I don't know if it was there in an interview, a, a, a can interview where he talks about how when he was a kid, he had a record player and he had the, the young person's guide for the orchestra. He had, he knew noise flood because he had been to performances of it. So these, these works by Benjamin Britten, noise flood being a, um, a an opera based on this, this biblical story of Noah, uh, as translated through the Chester mystery plays from, from the medieval times in England, you've got songs of Benjamin Britten that he wrote when he was a kid. Those are very interesting. Um, you've got a bit of the Midsummer Night's Dream, his opera. Um, and then you've got the Splots music, which is kind of playing off those. And then you have, true to form, right, some popular music, but not from the, the kind of um, classic rock or uh, uh, independent rock things that you would, you would assume. You've got like Hank Williams. You know, what's all that about? Um, <laughs> uh, interestingly, that he says in the book, you know, that in that same book, that um, that was a, la a rather late edition. I'd like to hear more about that, but I haven't been able to find anything more about that. And of course, the French song, which I always forget the um, the composer that kind of is a key moment in the movie. Yeah, something that almost stands in as the pop music, you know, stand in. So Hank Williams, then also the the French artist that you're describing right there. And, and you know, what's interesting when that film first came out, I remember the promotional materials coming out. 
The Hank Williams stuff was actually what I heard about first. It was almost like, oh, you know, there's not Rolling Stones in this one, but he's put in all this music of, of Hank Williams. It seems like an afterthought to me now. Right. Like it's it feels like that music is just more or less there to uh, kind of describe maybe one or just two characters in that. Doesn't it seem like that? It does. I, I now, you know, who, who are we to know what is inside Wes Anderson's brain? But it seems to me that it knowing that it was added late, it seems to be there, especially in the first half of the film, to help create more of a contrast with what happens to Sam's character to me. Because we were. We first hear it, you know, with him having escaped from camp, and it it it, it exists in the second half of the movie. But in many ways, uh, the key scene in the boat with um, with the scoutmaster, where we hear the Britain cuckoo song, it seems that those two things switch out, and the cuckoo becomes the predominant music for Sam, um, as if some kind of transformation has occurred when they're at title in the title inlet, and he's come back a different person. Um, and I think that maybe that's too uh, teleological to think, you know, it's this one and this one. But it seems like that it, when I'm listening to it. Um, it's very much music that's connected with adulthood or playing at being adults, the Hank Williams. And the cuckoo, very much music that's uh, connected to childhood or playing at being a child. Well, and, and the cuckoo song specifically, which is part of a, uh, it's a piece of a greater work, which is called Friday Afternoons, correct? Mm-hmm. What could you yes. tell us about Friday Afternoons? Well, Friday Afternoons is, is a really uh, fascinating set of uh, songs for school children that Britton wrote when he was quite young. He was just out of, um, just out of training at the Royal College of Music in London in the 30s. Um, and he wrote these over, uh, we think, a couple of years uh, to be performed by um, the students at his brother's school in Wales. And so um, they are unison songs, except for the last one. The last one is featured in Moonrise Kingdom too. And uh, you know they're um, they're earworms. They're intensely tuneful little things. That you can't help but kind of. Um, remember in your brain. And that's, I think, part of the reason why they work so well in the film, especially the Cuckoo song. But they're based on the poetry of uh, Walter Delamere and very much child topics. Uh, although, you know, with a hint of melancholy, especially the Cuckoo, because um, it's talking about transformation, right? It, you know, in each month, something else is happening until the Cuckoo goes away. Um and you know, it's good. One could say it's a metaphor for childhood, but again, that be reading something into it that does not there. That seems to be strengthened to me in the way it's used in the film. Yeah. Um, well, and it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful song, and, and specifically his text painting that he uses, specifically on the word "away," I think is so incredibly effective. It just works so well in that film. Um, one thing that I was thinking about with it, um, generally speaking, what would you describe? Uh, as some of Britain's characteristics musically of this particular period, specifically with Friday Afternoons. You already had mentioned the tuneful nature of these uh, songs. What else? I mean, very tuneful, mostly mostly diatonic in this period. I mean, he's just coming out of his training uh, as a composer, so he will experiment more with, with greater chromaticism. Um, uh uh, let's see. Uh, there's a lot of kind of um, repetition that goes on, like in the cuckoo song. The, the the actual singing of the verses is backgrounded by you know the sound of a cuckoo, 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 of course. Yep. right? Um, and the the way that they've been described by musicologists and music critics, these songs is insanely simple, but in their simplicity, compelling. Um, and I, I think it's important to note, and this may be just food for thought, do you know, um, those songs finally came together anecdotally in Britain's life. He had been working on them for a while, and then his father died. And he and his mother took off to Wales to stay with his brother at the school. And this is where Britain actually finished the song. So he's there, his father was had died, he's there with his brother, and he's working with the kids. He's, he's teaching them how to play the English game of cricket. And uh, 
he's taken over the singing lessons. Um, and that's where the name Friday Afternoons comes from, because at the school in Wales, Friday Afternoons was when they did music. Well, and so, I think, yeah, I think it's also interesting you point out the fact that these songs are noted for being in unison. And I am an educator, specifically a K5 music educator. Um, I almost get the impression that when he created these pieces of music, unison stands out because it's something where all of the children would be able to sing the exact same thing. As opposed to if you were to have part singing, for me, if I do a, an octavo and I have three different classes I have to have singing this octavo, I will have my two, uh, you know, maybe my two classes that are the weakest singers will sing the main line. <laughs> and then I'll have my class of real strong singers that have to do whatever this, you know, more intricate part. There's something I think poetic and beautiful about the fact that he wanted to have all those kids singing the exact same thing. And it's perfectly modulated to the amateur too, right? The amateur singer. Yeah. You can, you don't need much time uh, to, to teach it or to learn it. Uh, because of its repetitive nature, its earworm-like things, you hear it once and you can sing along. Yes, and I actually want to ask you one more thing. Um, it's my understanding that the cuckoo song, that's not necessarily something that's created within a vacuum. Um, this is actually, a, the, a cuckoo song is something that's a part of a larger tradition as well. Am I right? I, I understand it a, a little bit. Yeah, you may know more than I do about that. Well, I'm not too sure, but what can you tell us, if anything? I mean, uh, there there are often um, there has been a history of of children's songs. Are you talking about the, the kind of birds and children's yes, exactly. songs? Yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a longstanding tradition in English music. I think also in continental music, uh, classical music. You know, Haydn, uh, other composers as we go back further in time, who would often you know emulate the cuckoo because of its distinctive song, um, especially in music for children, but also in I'm thinking specifically of Haydn's Toy Symphony, where there is actually written out part for cuckoo, and that was a special little whistle that they had that that someone would play. Um, so I mean, yes, the the, the notion that this music is. Uh, not only for children, but engages in a tradition of music for and about children. And I think something uh, else... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. I had nothing more, yeah. I was just sitting there thinking about that. It's also something that doesn't condescend to children. It's music of the highest quality. In regards to his treatment of melody, it's beyond beautiful. Um, and, and that, to me, is something that Wes Anderson and Britton share as a commonality between the two artists. I find it interesting that Wes Anderson includes this music of Benjamin Britten so predominantly in this. So you have Benjamin Britten who had a huge interest in children and now you have Wes Anderson who for the, you know, really for the first time is putting these, you know, amateur actors on screen and really giving them them all and 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 uh, not condescending to them and making this brilliant kind of movie. And and I also find it interesting that uh a big part of this music, uh, excuse me, this film's construction came from Wes Anderson having these wonderful childhood memories of being in Noah's Flood, which is another piece of music that you had mentioned. Now, could you tell us a little bit more about Noah's Flood specifically? Well, it's a, it's a work, you know, as I say, it was written in, oh, I have it written down here somewhere, 1958. Um, uh, for um, uh, It was conceived of as a piece actually to be put on the uh, the television or the radio. But the idea was that you would have a few professional musicians, and then the other performers would all be amateurs, specifically uh adolescents children and 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 uh, a little bit older and that they would be playing uh some of the instruments and that they would be singing and that it would be staged and it was meant to be staged not in an opera house but either in a, a very large church or in a community hall so it was very much in the same realm as the friday afternoons in that it's amateur music making it was written and conceived of by britain for 
amateurs to perform alongside these professionals. The professionals were kind of be there. I think Britain called them the backbone, <laughs> right? Yeah. So things didn't go too far afield. So you have the string quartet and a couple of other I- I- instrumentalists. You have two uh, professional singers who sing Noah and, his, and Noah's wife, right? But all the other characters in the in the opera are played by children, and there are specific instrumental parts for children, like um, a, a series of uh, teacups that are tied up on a string, which represent the first drops of rain as the, as the flood starts coming down. Uh, the use of the bugle, which is an instrument that, that many children knew how to play back then, and a number of other instruments, hand chimes, uh, a number of percussion instruments. Um, so what, what we have here is a work which is invites children into the aesthetic experience of opera without any of its um, kind of uh, elitist trappings. So you can come together with the experience that the, or the skills that a child has, and you can be part of something which is much more advanced, much more fascinating um, than what the individual skills of the children who would be playing it could achieve alone. And it's beautiful to think that, you know, Britain created this, as you said, in the 50s. And, you know, at some point, it must have been in the late 70s, little Wes Anderson had an opportunity to be in one of these productions. And through that little seed being planted, he goes off and creates this beautiful kind of film. So it's interesting to see how these ideas are feeding each other and and, uh, progressing more or less. So I'm curious for you, when you first saw this film, what was your reaction? Okay, so you, you had mentioned that you are a Wes Anderson fan. What was your reaction to hearing all of the Britain in this film? Well, I mean, the very first shot is is my favorite shot in all of film. And when I heard that and saw that, I was, you know, enchanted doubly and kind of drawn into the whole world. Um, and, you know, that, that whole... Um, the, the whole device of the you guys talked about a little bit on the previous episode, you know, of the panning through the house, but set to the young person's guide to the orchestra, the personal theme, um, which I think there's a, a lot to unpack there. But just that kind of sets a certain tone in the whole work, and then to see not only to, to, to my mind as a British music scholar the 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 use of the of the British music, but strange references all the way through to. British, other British music, like you know, where do where do they all live? What is this island they're on? They're on New Penzance Island. <laughs> right. So for our listeners, uh, that's a reference to Gilbert and Solomon, right? Yes, of yeah. course, and and of course, Sam Shikusky is an orphan. Yes, of course. Wow. <laughs> Who runs away? And there's a group of uh, eventually comes to lead a group of you know kind of piratical. Cappy scouts, right? So, and you know, this is all you know. This is coming out of the the fevered brain of Shear. It's not. It's not Wes Anderson. But then you start thinking more about this, and you remember, I've been to Britain's Library, and I know that on the shelf in Britain's Library is a set of Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. Wow, you know, and you you start to see, you know. Wheels within wheels, I guess. Yeah, well, and, and furthermore, I kind of wonder even, you were talking about display. There, there's elements of the score that he created. So it, help me out with this to, to make sure that I'm saying this correctly. It's my understanding that you have the music of Britain that has to be dealt with. Furthermore, then you have uh, these Hank Williams and this kind of French pop song. That's the pop song, Wes Anderson thing. And then from there, you have Displace music. And that music, to me, sounds like it's it's the attempt to create it to me it actually sounds a little bit like gilbert and sullivan some of the stuff that that he was trying to to create how would you say that his his music is used in this film well i it's interesting i i can i can hear what you're meaning when you say when you say it sounds a bit like gilbert and sullivan you know it's a lot of repeated materials right over and over ostinato so repeated patterns but the interesting thing is and this is the joke is kind of laid bare in the credits right where you have Desplat's young person's guide to the orchestra of where course. right says the tubular bells the men's chorus and what Desplat is doing is he's using a bunch of weird instruments right tubular bells classical guitar electric guitar and he goes through they're not the instruments of the orchestra right but that's exactly what Britain does in Noah's Flood, 
right? He uses all of these strange instruments that children play, recorders and the teacups and all this other stuff. And this is Desplat kind of, I think, getting into that, that idea, that world of sound that, that uh, Britain is creating and kind of doing his own take on it, his own irreverent kind of take. And it all makes sense in the way that this is the, you know, the, that music accompanies, you know, often the actions of the children, right? So the young person's guide to the orchestra is, children, here's, here's how to learn about an adult thing called the orchestra. And Desplat's thing is, here is this crazy sound world that makes no sense. And adults, here is the world, here is the sound world of children. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Once, so you've got these parallels going on. Yeah. Yes, of course. So for you, I mean, I'm sure I know the answer to this. My question here is, do you feel that the use in Moonrise Kingdom is effective? Well, uh, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's incredibly effective. But maybe not for the, I mean, maybe not for the way that some people would think about it. Because to me, it sets me off on these kind of hermeneutic circles right of of meaning right when we start when i start thinking about britain's biography or other aspects of britain or british music or whatever and it kind of spins me away from the movie and then back to the movie again and i enjoy the movie more and more every time i do one of those yeah well and of course britain's you know his works you know there's quite a list of of pieces that he uh you know created in his life one thing that i think might help guide this conversation slightly is what could you tell us uh, a bit about uh britain's background you had said that he had a huge uh history of working with children is there anything else that you could really add within his work well there's there's a lot i mean there's um interesting perhaps for the movie you know there's britain's own experience as a student at different kind of uh preparatory schools and different uh, uh things like that which call to mind the kind of you know organized chaos of khaki scouts there is uh, you know, when he was young, there is, you know, other, there are other um, elements to his biography, which may be, be interesting to discuss here around his sexuality and yeah, around his, um, around the role of children in Britain's life and the, the ways in which Britain kind of um, continuously mined the notion of childhood throughout his career for both beautifully positive things like Friday afternoons, um, but also for very dark things as well. Yeah, well, and specifically when you get uh, later in his career, kind of past uh, the point of, of his career that we're talking about now, which you know, at Friday afternoons is the thirties, right? Is essentially that time. I had no yeah. idea that Noah's flood was as late as it was. So I find that to be interesting, but specifically in regards to his opera that he created the turn of the screw. Wow. That's a dark story. And you know, that's, that's relatively early. That's the fifties as well. Yeah. I find that fascinating that those two things are, you know, bumping up on top of each other. Yeah, I mean, and we find this, you know, throughout. There's the the fiery furnace, the children's crusade, a number of works in which horrible things happen to children, um, and the whole notion of childhood is not something which is positive and wonderful, but in fact a nightmare. And I think I think we have to understand there's you know there's a lot of biographical uh, volleyball that goes on, talking about Britain who was gay, um, children in his life, his upbringing, you know, lots of, of back and forth. But the, the current, you know, uh, scholarship has kind of landed on currently it, the fact that probably um, Britain was attracted to young boys, but that he never acted upon that yes. uh, attraction. Yeah, I and think we would be remiss not to mention this. Yes, and that's something that that kind of informs, and it informs in a in a in a way a complex way because it ties up with his own maybe sense of nostalgia, or lo- sense of loss. Because even I mean, there's this famous quotation of Imogen Holst, who was his assistant, um, who said, "You know, Ben, why do you why do you always write this stuff with the kids?" And he turns to Imogen and says, "But I'm I'm a thir- I'm still a thirteen year old boy." 
so he the way he sees himself yeah well and i don't know if you heard this within our show the number 13 got brought up uh at some point during the conversation because this film takes place uh at the you know at the point of these two characters lives when they're 12 years old the next mm-hmm. year would be 13 my you know i i just i'm just so fascinated in this stuff because then once i read the thing of kind of his propensity towards the age 13 within himself kind of identifying mm-hmm. so strongly with it um and then kind of writing and and maybe having these relationships that are somewhat questionable so at the time of his life uh amongst the people that he knew was it something that was kind of talked about in hushed quarters of like what's that all about now i'm i'm speaking from my knowledge of the biographies um and yeah i mean his partner his life partner was the tenor peter piers and he and peter piers and other people kind of knew that britain had this fascination with with young boys and he would uh he had a number of boys who were his kind of favorites and he would lavish gifts and things on them and then they would grow up and he in britain would just kind of reject them they would just be kind of cast out. Um, so there was definitely an, an awareness of this situation and I think a watchfulness. Um, Britain's world is a fascinating one. And it's, it's one that would be, it'd be interesting to think about in terms of, um, and I'm not talking about the boys, but Wes Anderson's world in that Britain, you know, kind of created this world around himself. He lived in this tiny little village in the east of England called Albra. It looks like Aldeborough, but he lived there and he built a festival there and he built a whole kind of world with himself in the center. But that world, you know, in reflecting what he loved also was a protection against the outside world. So it was a very kind of insular world where Britain was in the center and these people were all protecting him. And that really comes out in the history of talking about Britain because, you know, to discuss Britain's music and the fact that he was gay was a topic that was not to be discussed until the 1980s and the and the pioneering work of a, a scholar named Philip Brett. Before that, you know, you could be you could be banned from the Albra Festival for discussing this very obvious elements of Britain's life and its and its uh, its role in his music. Um, so you know, there's this this sense of protection around Britain, um, partially because of, of, you know, his fascination with young boys, but also because of his homosexuality, which up and until I think it was the, the late sixties or seventies was a crime in England. Um, and so here we have a very famous composer who is, um, you know, could be arrested and thrown in jail for for being gay um and that plays out in so many of his works it plays out in the turn to the screw we also see it in his operas like uh, uh peter grimes and billy budd um this sense not necessarily of of a gay character but of an outsider someone who is outside of society does that sound like anyone familiar from the movie mm-hmm. uh, you know sam shikuski right yes, he does not fit in um, so that notion of the outsider um, and the way that society treats the outsider and the injustice of society um, is a theme that Britain comes back to again and again and again. And uh, interestingly, Britain's last opera, of course, is Death in Venice, where this whole idea of you know, young boys and um, you know love from afar is taken up overtly, right? Um, with this, the story I know of of Thomas Mann, Venice, this old man Aschenbach who falls in love with a boy on the beach. He sees the boy. They never, they I think exchange one a couple words, but it's all you know love from afar kind of thing. Um, and people have made a lot of hay with that um, in discussing the biography. But I mean, that's all. All of the contradiction is in there, right? And I think though it makes Britain's music especially. Um, advantageous to some to people who are thinking about um, the notion of the outsider and what it means to be the outsider in society. And I'm not saying that that's what Anderson is thinking of here, but there those themes seem to come together beautifully in Moonrise Kingdom. Well, I think for me, that brings me to my last thought that I wanted to ask you. Uh, we had kind of mentioned that Wes Anderson has a 
to me, you know, from reading the book, a pretty significant knowledge or certainly interest in classical music. I'm curious if you, and, and obviously we can't speak for, for Mr. Anderson, but I'm curious, would you guess from seeing this film that Wes Anderson himself had knowledge of some of these pieces that he used predominantly in the film, or maybe as a whole, a greater understanding of Britain's life. Do you know, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I, I wonder if he did, uh, interestingly enough, the, the most current biography, um, actually makes reference to Moonrise Kingdom. Hmm. So, you know, Moonrise Kingdom has had an effect in the, the Britain biography world, right? But there were enough books and and they were mainstream enough that, that Anderson may have had the opportunity, you know, be interested in Noah's Flood to pick up a book, probably Humphrey Carpenter's biography, and read about some of these aspects. Um, a lot of what Humphrey Carpenter argues has been critiqued by Paul Kilday, the new uh, biographer um, but nonetheless I think that um, this is enough mainstream now these these topics that we've been discussing I mean there's this other book I know we've talked about before this recording this episode uh, Britain's uh, children right which has been turned into a, a um, turned into a documentary and um, the the Britain estate has embraced that and so on and so forth so there's enough out there that I think Anderson probably, may have been aware of some of these things um or if not just more uh, more works by britain and this recurring theme of the outsider yes well hey thank you so much for all your time today we certainly appreciate it and uh you know hopefully you know we might call upon you again at another point if we have a deep dive in a particular composer you're a very knowledgeable affable person and just thank you for doing this um before we leave i wanted to ask you this something that came up previously on the episode was uh my wife hannah other co-host on the show she said you're either a rushmore on top of the list of his filmography or rushmore at the bottom where do you stand you know, I heard I heard that whole discussion, and I was thinking, I was thinking, you know, uh, I don't want to be contrary, but but I just like it's kind of in the middle for me, unfortunately. Oh, I mean, I mean, I, I have to say I'm a great fan of of the more of some of the more recent films, um, Budapest Hotel, Moonrise Kingdom, um, but you know, Rushmore kind of falls in the middle for me after those with with Tenenbaums, with you know unsurprisingly maybe Darjeeling limited at the bottom wow they, you know what that was very common when people were sending lists that one being way down there yeah so i i hate to disappoint but i you know it, it kind of rides in the middle with the other iconic you know kind of pieces well with bombs, right yeah uh, I, I guess so. now so throughout that episode we just had tons of people connecting with us via different ways of sending their list of the the entire filmography one thing that was very common was moonrise kingdom being smack dab right there in the middle for most people where does it lie for you on your list oh i think it's 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 at the top i mean it it in and grand budapest which i is another film i absolutely love um those two kind of yeah at the top for me it has to be wonderful well hey thank you so much we appreciate everything and i uh, hope quarantine's treat- treating you well and hope to talk to you again someday it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much thank you have a good one bye bye <laughs>